Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to be speaking with Tukan Das, the founder of LeadSift. He's going to be speaking to us about what mistakes he's made along the way of growing his company and what he's learned from them so that you could avoid them as well. He's also going to explain the, the importance of selling as the founder yourself uh, before hiring a salesperson and how to deliver value proposition and why it's so important. And we're going to cover a lot of other topics, including things like why company culture is so important. And we're not just talking about the company culture of, a, of having a, an Xbox and food in the closet and where ego stands in the company. It's going to be a great episode. We're really looking forward to it. And I hope you enjoy. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Tukan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Adam. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your, your past and your, who you are? <laughs> yeah, so my name is Tukan. I'm originally from India. Um, I moved to Canada about 16 years ago for my university. My background is in computer science. Um, I did my master's in natural language processing. Actually, I didn't finish my master's. I, I dropped out uh, in the final year to start LeadSift uh, with a couple of my friends. Um, and um, my, 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 my interest has always been around mining for unstructured data, massive amounts of unstructured data to find nuggets of information. And I think that itch uh, resulted in in us developing LeadSift about six years ago. Um, LeadSift, for people that don't know, is a sales intelligence solution that helps other B2B software companies identify the accounts to go after based on behavioral intent data. So yeah, so that's my story in, I guess, 30 or 60 seconds. <laughs> there we go, good. Um, I was e reading uh, on your LinkedIn profile oh. uh, about your years ago, you, uh, you set up a lot of meetings for the prospective clients and you you spent a lot of time with them and really oh. thought that you had closed the deal uh, but you failed to actually uh, show the value proposition yeah. can you can you give us that story yeah it's a great story i i, I did write a blog i remember so this was about uh, three 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 and a half three and a half, four years ago. So we were, we were back then we were selling a different product. We were going after large enterprise companies and uh, we were all trying to myself and my other sales person in the team, we were all going after large enterprise accounts. So this, this company, um, I really wanted to close them. They're a massive Canadian company, uh, definitely the fortune 500. So I got one of our investors to book a meeting with the, in there, someone in their VP digital team, like super senior. So I went ahead, did a pitch, they liked it. Um, there was some email exchanges, and then we flew back again, presented to a team of, I don't know, 30 people. Like we actually had a presentation, and it was, every stakeholder was there, it was, it was really good, and I was super pumped. I came back to the team, and this was gonna be a 
think a six-figure deal and potential to expand and i was so excited i'm like guys this is it our quarter set we are going to land this you know massive uh, wheel and then we are going to expand from it and this is this is what we are waiting for but then you know a week later there was there was some silence and then i followed up didn't hear back so me impatiently i reached out to our investor and i'm like hey you know can you please check what's going on i thought we we're going to close this deal and in hindsight that was stupid too to ask the investors to check for me but anyways um he he got he checked for me and he came back saying hey they they were interested they were intrigued but the value proposition was not clear and when i read that i was super angry i should say um and uh, i just basically fired off an email saying hey thank you for you know letting me know and this is to my investor um and i'm like thanks for letting me know but uh, I thought, you know, I, I clearly articulated what they can do with our product, what we have done with other customers. And I pitched to them, you know, two times to 40 people or however many. How can they not close? Um, how can, and, and I thought the value prop was clear. Why would they invite so many people and all those? And I remember this investor, um, and his name is Derek Smith. He's, he's a legend. Um, he's one of the most helpful guys in the Canadian startup ecosystem. Unfortunately, Derek passed away uh, last year. But what Derek wrote to me, and I clearly remember was, he said, uh, Tukan, clients that do not get your value proposition do not owe you anything. And, uh, and I was just stunned. Um, I didn't realize at that point what that line meant, but then I started thinking about it. And uh, I think that has been one of the biggest learning lessons for me from a sales perspective, um, because I'm not from a sales background, as I mentioned. Uh, but e either way, even if you're from a sales background, um, clients do not owe you anything uh, if the value proposition is not clear specifically for them. You might have the best, shiniest tool and best price and all those beautiful graphs and pretty AI and all those buzzwords you want to put in. But if the clients do not get the value proposition, they don't owe you anything. So, so that, that's the lesson learned. That's the story. It's a, it's a very good story. And it's uh, for any salesperson or any leader to get a sales team, I think, to, to speak the same language. And just because you say the same keywords I'm speaking doesn't mean that your interpretation of those keywords are the same as mine. Exactly. And and so you you said that you felt like you you shared the value proposition quite well but oh, yeah. i think it maybe it was a uh that situation where they they had a different picture in their mind and the thing is and i think i've, I've learned more from that particular incident and, and other is uh, even if i felt that they connected i didn't ask them the right follow-up questions uh, to really understand are they getting it can they see what i'm selling uh, being used in their workflow. Uh, I didn't ask those questions. So that's, yeah, that's, that's also one of the things. Yeah. Making a, you, you made some assumptions. A lot, lot of assumptions. I assumed that, you know, this was perfect. Why wouldn't it be? And uh, anyways. And so, so what else did you learn from that as far as a, a sales perspective goes? And as far as a sale, as far as the founder being doing the sales? Um, and I think it, it's not just a founder, but anyone who's trying to sell a product, I think asking the right questions. Um, so 
few things I learned not from that incident definitely was you know it was me presenting me talking them listening it's not them talking me hearing and then re reformatting and then making our solution a fit for them it was me presenting i was in present mode uh, because i was so excited about what to sell what we had all the shiny things we built uh, so that's a big mistake and then the second thing is it's in, in same thing is ask right pointed questions if you need be um, especially for an early stage founder who's selling have a script man have a list of questions i actually did that one of my mentors said that have a script of what specifically what questions you're going to ask uh, be be flexible don't be a machine where you just you know read off a Check script yeah done done what's next next no um there are chatbots for that now uh, yes. but uh but but have list of questions so that those questions will guide you uh, to the answer and it'll give you a very clear idea of is this a nice to have or a must have or what is the what's the what's blocking it why are they not buying from you now are they buying from someone else there might be other factors but until you ask those questions you are assuming oh they have money they're a big company they're a publicly traded company your solution is only this much it's nothing and they have 30 people they'll buy they're happy they're smiling they're waving at you uh, and so so yeah so asking the right questions um listening more than talking um let them tell you what the problem is uh, they don't really and the other thing that i learned is they don't really care about what ai what algorithms what data structures how optimized how pretty it is nobody ever cares about that it can be the ugliest software it can be just a spreadsheet but if it's solving the pain point that's all that matters um so so yeah yeah solving the pain point and that comes back to asking the right questions to understand what that pain point exactly is. exactly so you were the first salesperson uh in the company uh, as the founder no i was not so that's also a, an interesting story so as i said um not i'm a technical founder i i like i like to code um, um so when we first started the company mean uh, and and fortunately or luck um, all of our co-founders were also technical so when we raised money um, the first thing that we did was well we cannot sell the product uh, we need a, a sales and marketing person and I, I remember i reached out to our chairman board chairman said hey we the first hire we are going to do um, after raising our first venture round is we're going to hire a sales and marketing person and and i was being so stupid the, my my board chairman he, he wrote back he's like do you need a salesperson or a marketing person because there's nothing called a sales and marketing person and that was my first introduction to the reality of of selling a product i'm like uh there is a difference oh really okay so i looked up what the difference is between sales and marketing is and then i said we need a salesperson we don't need marketing we need a salesperson who can go sell the product this was very very early days we basically we just had a glorified prototype nothing and even that was half-assed um so we we said all right we're gonna get a salesperson and and we will go back to our comfort zone because we are more comfortable writing code debugging code than going and picking up the phone and having a chat or trying to sell something um so so yeah so i was not the first salesperson we hired a, a, a head of sales and um and in hindsight if i add 
Um, that's that was a big mistake on our part, um, and it was completely our goal. If he, he even if he had gotten the best salesperson in the whole world, uh, I don't think he or she wouldn't have been able to sell the product because early on your products have paid. Uh, you, you there is no sales collateral. There's no marketing collateral. There is no you know. A nurture email follow-up there the product doesn't have all the integrations not all the bells and whistles it is just uh, it's just a proof of concept that that spits something out that's in theory solves a pain point so um for a for a salesperson to come in and and sell that it's incredibly hard and it's unfair on them um, um and 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 they are not trained to understand you know what the what the challenges are and then navigate to the product team because they're incentivized or motivated for for a different kind of metrics right and which is how it should be but early on you want the founders to be selling so so yeah so that's so i was not the first salesperson and why do you want the founders to be selling at the beginning yeah because let's be honest um no one will be as passionate about your product as your business in the early days uh, as the founder no one and, and that's the story that's the truth across the board right um and in the early days when the product is half-baked things are breaking when things are not everything's not there uh, a founder can convince uh, the prospective client the vision where they're going uh, through the passion that they have um, a, a salesperson can never do it in the early days uh, and it has got nothing to do with the quality of the salesperson it's just the reality uh, the other thing is if a founder cannot early days go in and sell the product uh, how are you going to what are you going to tell the salesperson you're going to say go this is my half-assed product go sell it figure it out that's how it, it, it was right that um, so so it's super super imp important for the founder to in the early days get the first 10 20 30 customers figure out the ideal buyer persona figure out the objections figure out the initial sales cycles uh, give that rapid feedback to the customer success team uh, to the product team um, in in figuring out in building the right product um, and then once you have the initial groundwork laid out where you know hey you know i can sell if I talk to 20 people, I can sell two deals. Um, so I need to talk to this many, and these are the common objections. This is the price point. These are the real people who get excited. These are not the people we should not sell to. Um, until you know that, um, you should not hire anybody external. You need to do that early on. Um, so, so yeah, that's why I think the founder should sell. Yeah, I think another really good reason is, is how can you sit there and tell the salesperson, hey, you could sell this. Why aren't you selling? That's it. It'll be <laughs> disingenuous. You know yourself. It'll be disingenuous. And, 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 and we have gone through that where, where I'm like, oh, why, why isn't sales happening? Because I read in blogs that, you know, this company is doing this many sales. I, I, I have, I'm, again, ignorant, right? I have no idea, right? But if I know that I could have sold these many these many deals through the this process that i followed in theory if you replicate that you should get at least that much result if not better um, because you you are a trained person and i have already laid the groundwork until you do that it's it's a waste of resources to be honest with you so so what what happened with that first salesperson that you that you hired um 
he was great. I mean, um, he he was there with us for for three and a half years. Um, we did evolve the product, and he he did start to sell. Uh, but then there was a point where we came, um, where we were pivoting our product, and uh, it was it was just not gonna be the right fit. We were starting from ground zero uh, about two and a half years ago. So so at that point, we we basically took separate paths. But uh, yeah, but yeah. So and- it was my 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 mistake throughout the whole pro- part of not realizing that I should be selling from day one and then and then transition over, then bring someone in because at that point that uh, and now that I look back on it, if if we had if I had sold the first 10, 20, 30 deals and we had the initial traction, figured out all the kinks in the product and the sales process and then brought him in, you'd have absolutely dominated. Um, so yeah. Yeah. All right. And so now have you hired somebody do you have some sales team now yeah so what we did was um so we we started november 2012 that's when we started um we did we, we our first so just just to back up at leadsift when we started leadsift uh, our company vision was to mine unstructured data to pick up signals of intent um, for companies to connect with with their potential customers, that has been our whole goal. Um, that's what excites us. Um, so our first product was to figure out uh, who was in market to buy a consumer facing product, meaning who was looking to buy a new phone, uh, new car, new house, new credit card, you name it, anything consumer related, new insurance, uh, new travel plan, or something. We were we were doing that. So we did that for three and a half years, and there were there are a lot of challenges we faced, uh, tons of learnings. Um, but about in 2016, we we came to a like a crossroad where we had that where we had uh, uh, to make the tough decision of either shutting down the business, um, getting Equa hired. There were few few companies that were interested, uh, and and the third option was trying to make a go of, you know, trying of whatever runway we had left. So we took option number three. Um, and uh, what we did was, uh, at, that was the point when when I started selling as the only salesperson. Um, and what we did was, uh, and there's some interesting product stories too, how, how we sold it. But basically, I sold it for a year, uh, year and two months, uh, sold up to 50 customers. And at that point, I realized, I think it's my, I, I, I am not being able to follow up with enough leads because I didn't have, I still don't have a proper ethic enough that a salesperson does, and I couldn't manage it myself. That was the point where we said, all right, let's bring in another salesperson who was smart and uh, hungry. And that's what we did. And um, fortunately for us, um, that's, after that salesperson came in, he closed double the number of deals in the same time I was doing. Um, so, and I think... Yeah. Uh, and and I think it, it goes to the point because when he came in, I said, look, these are the guys we really work well with. These are the guys we don't. And these are the objections we get. This is a script. These are the number of emails we need to send. This is what it happens. This is a price point. And this is how, what I have done. Um, and you optimize it and, 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 and then take it away. So, so, yeah, that's what we did. And it's worked great. Did you hire somebody that 
came with a lot of experience or somebody that was more junior? No. So, no, not a ton of experience. This person had uh, years worth of sales experience. He was as an SDR um, mm -hmm. at another startup. Um, so not a ton of experience, just very entrepreneurial. Um, and I think that's what, that, that's what we needed. We, we didn't need, I mean, it's great that he had, um, he knew how to use a CRM HubSpot. He knew, you know, email follow-up and all those things, uh, cold calling and stuff like that. But even if this person didn't have it, we would have still hired just based on the attitude. We didn't really, ours is not a very complex sales. We are not going after large enterprise companies. It's all an inside sales model. So um, yeah, we just needed a, a really smart, entrepreneurial, hungry person. You, you said that's smart and entrepreneurial, but how, why these traits? Look, you have to be smart, right? That, that, <laughs> that's number one. If you figure out that person's not bright, you probably don't want to hire in, in a high stress, high, um, high velocity uh, environment. So that's, that's table stakes. Um, entrepreneurial. Um, the thing with working in a startup, uh, and especially in an early stage fledgling startup, um, the challenges, there are many challenges. It's a lot of uncertainty. You don't know what will happen a year after. Um, uh, there are, there are th rules that you're making up as you go. You have to figure things out. Um, and, and the way we like to say is we'd much rather you come to us and say, hey, you know, this was the problem. I tried doing this. Um, I screwed up, uh, but then I fixed it by doing this. Um, I'd much, we'd much rather prefer that than coming to say, hey, can I do this or should I do this? Just, just get it done. You, you're, so, so those two things, the uncertainty of a startup and that, that kind of a mentality. And uh, so that's why I said entrepreneurial trade, who's willing to take that risk, who understands that a year from now, they might not have a job. And we actually tell our employees early on, it's like, this is the runway we have uh, in the interview process, actually. That's one of the things. Yeah. And we are completely transparent with it. Like, this is the runway we have. Um, we, we, we think we'll be fine, we'll be profitable, or we'll get more money, or we'll scale it. But it's highly likelihood that we'll be out. Are you willing to take the risk? And if they are, and you can tell from that answer, um, and if they're willing to take the risk, then let's, let's go. Let's see. So... So yeah, that's so why how entrepreneurial. You, how do you tell though? Like, because you could ask me that question. I could just say, yes, I'm willing to take that risk. Yes. How do you tell between somebody that really means it or somebody that's just kind of telling you what you want to hear to get the job? I do not have a scientific answer on that, to be honest <laughs> with you, Adam. It's, it's purely on the body language. And I tell uh, what, what we do ask. So you, you, base, you ask that question face-to-face -face always. Uh, you look, try to look in the eye and then you ask them basically follow up. He's like, so what will happen if if you know if this happens like what will happen what will you do if you lose the job in nine months or a year um and that their answer to that is very confident is very telling um, if if they are like you know i worked at my previous job which we had the same setup and that was not i was not scared of that and i'm trying to work at another startup so that gives me an idea that this person is not scared he's not looking for a comfy you know large enterprise type company he's willing he or she is willing to take the risk so uh, but i do not have a definitive answer i cannot uh, my my confidence score is not very high on that yet i don't have a, a <laughs> algorithm to tell you that i found that if you ask some more situational questions about how they would handle it in in a different way 
that's not so obvious, but then you you understand how their thought process works mm-hmm. and how how they answer it. You'll you'll get a better idea of of what their true intentions. Are. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, and you said also that you're looking for some. You were looking for somebody that's entrepreneurial. How would you gain that uh, knowledge from from the interview? So, a few things we do ask them is: Do you have any side projects? Have you done any kind of side projects currently? Uh, have you done something in the past? Um, so that gives us an indication that they're self-driven. Um, so they have that. So that's that's a pretty obvious thing. Um, and by entrepreneurial, I don't necessarily mean, I, I think I might have been using the wrong word, but, but entrepreneurial for me doesn't necessarily mean they want to start a, their own business or they, excuse me, or they have done something on their own. Um, for me, it means is uh, they, they're always trying to push the boundaries of, mm-hmm. of the status quo in whatever job they're doing, whether it's at the current job they're working at or at a previous company or something of their own. Uh, and they are they're going to try and figure out a way to get that get that done so for me that's 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 kind of attitude that we are looking for especially in a salesperson yeah absolutely and especially a salesperson in an early stage absolutely <laughs> it, it, it's the most it's such a key role so yeah and we we locked out we locked out big time so that's good yeah i i found that uh when i'm interviewing people i'll i'll also ask them what's the last thing that you learned that was really interesting Hmm. and i don't care if it's if it's something about painting or something completely unrelated but Hmm. i'm looking for somebody that's that's actively learning and actively progressing themselves i find that that's important trait as well so there's another thing that we ask that, that i absolutely agree so there's another thing this is this might be controversial but uh, one of the <laughs> things again being a startup we don't you know there there are no there's so much uncertainty there's uncertainty about the amount of hours that you'll work um so one thing we say is hey this is our it's a 40 hour week uh, but know that you know there are times you have to work extra uh, we don't necessarily want you to more. If you can get your job done in 40 hours or 30 hours, great. You don't have, we are not counting hours. But one of the things that we look for is, uh, what if on a you know, Friday night or Saturday um, or Sunday, someone che- texts you or a prospect texts you on Drift or it sends you an email? Would you be comfortable, if you're free, would you be comfortable responding to it? And you know no one else can take that call or take that, respond to that email. Would you be comfortable? Um, because as a founder, that knowing that your, your teammates can do that, um, that, that's all you can ask for. That, that is the biggest asset uh, for me, um, that kind of mentality. And we ask that question. And somebody, some people are like, no, I'm, I, I'd like to keep it between seven to three. That's my work day. I'd like to have time. And that's absolutely fine. But then you're not a fit. And I'm not asking you to work 70 hours a week, but let's just have that mentality that, you know, I know this is, this is my team. This is, I'm taking care of the team. Like I want all our teammates to think the same way. It's like, if something's gone down and I know no one else can take it and I have time, I'll just jump on the call and I'll, I'll jump on chat and I'll chat with them. Um, or, or if there's a bug for a technical engineer um, and a customer's waiting because every customer matters in a startup and you know you can fix that bug. Uh, if you can do that, uh, amazing. So. So, yeah, so that's another yeah. question we ask. Absolutely. You've got to be hungry. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're available and somebody's coming and saying, hey, I want to buy, yeah. you want to jump on that. Yes. You don't want him to go to your competition and, and buy there. That, that's right. And, and, and more than hungry, it's just feeling for the company. Um, yeah. 
so that's that's the thing if, if you're on, on, on a vacation or, or honeymoon we don't want to disturb you but let's say you're on a weekend and you know no one else can take it and that you taking that call or that just responding that person on chat can add x amount of dollars to the total business revenue because you know what the revenue is that that kind of mentality uh, that kind of empathy towards the company is is what we hope for so yeah Every time I speak to a, a new a founder uh, or very early stage, hasn't hired a salesperson yet, I tell them that the first salesperson should be somebody that really believes in your, in your story and believes in your product and is passionate about it because, like you said, it, it, they've got a feel for the business. Absolutely. If, if, they are, if they think that it is also their business, it, they feel part of the team, you are set. And the onus is also on the founders, though. You cannot. You might have a great story, but you cannot bring in someone and expect them to start feeling passionate about the business the same way as you do. Um, so this is also a, a big, big, big lesson I have learned as a leader. And it doesn't need to be the founder. It can be the sales leader, director, head of product, head of marketing. They need to make, they need to feel that they are part of a team of a bigger cause. They need to be passionate about it, and then they need to you know, permeate that feeling down, down, downstream. Um, that's also a key thing as a leader. And wow, a lot of times, that's uh, very impactful. What you just said, yeah, and a really, really big, uh, big for people to understand. <laughs> yeah, it is super key, man. So one of the things that I heard again, you hear these cliches, right? When you're starting a company, you read so many blogs and LinkedIn posts is all over, right? One of the things that that I heard was uh, strategy. No, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, I don't know if you have heard it or not. A pretty common one, or, or some variant of it. And I thought I was, what? What is this reference? Like, why is culture eating strategy? If I, my strategy is good. Uh, and then my product is good, it'll work. I think culture is the most important thing a founder can set the tone. That is probably the most important thing. And culture is a broad term. It starts from what you do, what you say, who you hire, uh, how you present yourself, how transparent you are, um, how decisive you are, how calm you are, a combination of multiple things. But I think culture is super key. And that's also key for keeping your team motivated, for the team to feel I'm part of the team, I'm passionate. Because I can see this, this person has, is on a daily basis, he or she is articulating that. And, and so, yeah. I, I agree completely. And I think that the, there's so many people that think culture is just about having a Xbox and, and some <laughs> cereal in, in the coverage. And that, that's definitely not what culture no, is. No, it's not. It, it helps. Uh, but that's not it. It's and I made yeah. so many mistakes, so so many mistakes in the first three and a half four years of before we did the product pivot. From every like every mistake in the in in the startup book I have done. Um, yeah, and I'm fortunate to still survive. Um, uh, but uh, but culture, I, I screwed up. I screwed up on that big time. So yeah. So uh, let's dive down there. How how did you screw up and? How, how did you, what did you learn and what are some of the key takeaways? Um, first thing, um, communication. Um, there were a lot of times, um, because you're busy, everyone is busy, things need to move fast. I would take a decision thinking, I'm taking it in the best interest of the company. I have no personal interest. I'm not making any money 
from any sales or any decision or, or anything. Um, so I just, you know, I would take a decision without letting the team know at that point, consulting with them because I want to, things to move fast. Um, that was a, that's a horrible, horrible thing. Um, you don't have to get unanimous decisions, but uh, it, for their perspective, they don't think, see the things the way you see it. So let's say you took a big decision without telling anyone and they're like, and then two days later you come in and say, oh, guys, um, I just, you know, talked to that CEO when we're thinking of a partnership. And everyone in the team goes, well, but our roadmap is full. Why are you talking about a partnership? We're talking to, but then I'm like, but guys, we can potentially make more money from this. Uh, and our, I had 50 reasons. Uh, good. And there were legit reasons, but the execution was poor. So I think communication um, plays a big, big, big role in culture, being transparent. Uh, that's a big, big role. Um, and I think there- it goes back to what you were saying before about the all the employees, all the team, they need to feel like they're actually part of the team, part of the decision making process. 100 percent. 100 percent. So you cannot over communicate enough. So that's that's one of the big things. Um, second thing is hiring the right people. Uh, hiring the right people. Um, I never asked this question before to to this question of we, we have this much run we left. Would you be okay with it? Um, I never I hit that uh, in the interview at least after then when they join then I tell them. so uh, and as a result we I, the one thing that we do not want is so you want smart entrepreneurial passionate people across all the roles and everyone will say that the one thing you do not want is people with ego they'll destroy it. Uh, there shouldn't be a place for brilliant jerks in your team. Uh, doesn't matter how good they are in what function if they're, they're they're not if they're a jerk as i said you need to you need to make that decision faster so i didn't move fast enough on a few things um so that's also a culture thing the third and the most biggest thing that i realized um is the product team which is in a small ours is a tech heavy company so product r d is the biggest component um the you need to keep them motivated. They are not motivated by, um, they, they are not selling products. So they're not, they don't have a compensation or like a commission target or anything like that. They're busting their ass building features. Um, so, and I thought, well, they get to work on interesting products. Why do they care about it? Right there. We are trying to, you're just thinking out, thinking so many different things, trying so many things from a sales marketing perspective, they should just build it. And they should be motivated enough. Um, mm -hmm. um, that is such a horrible, horrible thing to think, uh, way to think. And one of the things we realized for this product pivot, um, true story, uh, we had our, in 2015, in our end of the year, we had a board meeting and we had the strongest quarter ever. We closed multiple deals and I presented to the team, to the board, I was feeling super pumped. Um, we had three Fortune 100 clients close that quarter itself, so feeling great. And then one item that I had in the list was uh, team morale. Uh, and I said, the engineering team or the team morale is not good. And one of our board members said, he's like, I can see why. And I'm like, what do you mean? This was right at the end of the board meeting. I thought the board meeting was going great and we we're going to be fine with whatever product we had. And he said, well, in the, last, in the last two slides, you showed three clients that you closed, Fortune 100 clients, massive clients. The use cases for each one of them were different. Your product team had to build slightly customized version of your product 
uh, a flavor of it to support each one of them. That is actually them being a, a, a design agent, a development agency, not a software SaaS product. Um, so they're working on something and then they're like, oh, scratch that. Can you build this? Uh, that's how, what you're doing. That is extremely demotivating for your product team. Uh, and that hit me like a ton of brick, that whole thing. And I'm like, that is actually true. In the last six months, we have had guys spend month, a month at least, or two months building a feature because a big customer said, oh, if you have this pretty graph, I'll buy it. And they spend time building it. And then, then when we go back to them, they're like, ah, sorry, budget's not there. Let's come back next year. So all the effort that they did was garbage. And we were, they were doing that repeatedly. Um, and they were building sort of custom version because we just so were so desperate to sell to these large companies. Um, and that was absolutely crushing their soul, the, the engineering teams, the R&D team. Um, so cultural-wise, there is nothing worse you can do as a, as a founder to the engineering team. Um, so funny thing, the reason we pivoted was that comment, which was around how can we boost team morale? I was expecting them to say, oh, you should give them a raise. You should buy a ping pong table. You should do this. It went into, <laughs> you are screwing up and you're not even realizing it. So that's when we said, you know what, let's step back. We are not really selling a product. We are building custom tools for clients and one-offs. We cannot sustain that. So that's when we decided to pivot the product. There were many reasons, but that was a trigger comment. Um, so from a culture perspective, wrapping up uh, transparency, hiring the right kind of people, uh, no egos, and then making sure uh, what your product team is building is being used by the uh, by the end customers because that's the motivation for them they're not looking for a pay high they're not looking for a commission what they want is they've spent so much time coming up with this feature or this tool or a widget uh, their biggest satisfaction is oh 100 people used it oh, or the 10 people that use this new feature they got a lift in something um, that's the biggest motivation so so yeah those are those are, those are some <laughs> some culture cues that i picked up it's very good and i, I want to talk about the last one about the engineering team yeah. And, and as it relates to sales, because so many times sales people will come and say like, oh, I got this big deal and I told them I could do it. Um, how, how did you guys deal with that as you pivot uh, yeah. and having the sales team turn down business because you were not going to add a feature just for them? We, we realized we were making that mistake. The first thing was being aware that we were doing that. Um, so, and it, it happened again uh, with this new product. It happened again. But what we took was, we did a few things. We said, we will not build anything until we have commitment from customers that are paying. That was our uh, mantra. Truly data-driven product development or whatever you want to call it. I don't know if there's a term. But basically, the way we even started this product pivot was, and this is crazy, we, we had this idea of it fun. Luckily enough, it, ha it was always around mining intent. Now we said, let's not go after consumer-facing companies. Let's go after B2B companies, companies that sell a business product to another business and focused on software companies. So what we said was, let's talk to X amount of companies. After X, we set a number. I think it was 80%. If 80% of them say what we are doing is solving a pain, it's a, it's a pain for them, only then we will go to the next step. And what we said is, out of those 80%, if at least 20% of them say, yes, we will pay a dollar amount, something, sign a contract, then we will say, 
all right, let's build this. That's how we actually build this product. So we interviewed X, I think 20 people, 80% of them said, yeah, this is a pain point. And then we got three people signing a sheet of paper, like a one page saying, I'll pay $99 or something very nominal to, to do this. We actually didn't have a product. We didn't have any code written. So we spent three months manually doing it. Uh, sending them data, manually finding intent signals because the data is all public, right? We humanly spent eight to 12 hours every day looking at it, all of us. And then when we started getting those customers and we understood how they use it, we started automating parts by parts by part. So that's how we did it. And that's how we have solved it. Since then, what we have decided is as a CEO, as a founding CEO, one, one mistake I have is a technical product type technical CEO, my first instinct is, oh, I have this amazing idea. Let's do this. Um, we have a, uh, one of our co-founders, she's, she's a head of product. Um, she's basically you know, put her foot down and said, you are not going to go talk to the engineering team with your crazy whack ideas. It might be good. It might. So we have a process. We put them in Jira. Um, then what we do is we actually, we have about 120 customers. We take a group of customers. We send them an email saying, hey, this is what we are building. Survey or a call. We get some data how they will use it only if an x percent of them say yes we will use it and how this is how we'll use it only then they go in our sprint backlog um, so we still make mistakes we still roll out products that don't click not product features um, i mean that will always happen we cannot have ever 100 percent. google gets 30 percent of their products right but it's a lot less they like it our engineering team loves the process and it's truly data driven so so that's how we have solved that. Fantastic. And yeah. uh, I think one of the biggest things there is that you said that you actually got three people to pay for it before you actually had a product. Yeah. And I think that startup, all the startup founders out there, uh, early stage should take note of that to, to go get some money. Yeah. Uh, and people will sign if they believe in you and believe what you're doing. Exactly. And doesn't matter. And so I, I actually also wrote a blog about that. Uh, it needs to be paying customers. Not doesn't matter. Three customers will say like, yeah, I'll try it out for a free trial. No, it needs to be a paying customer. Even if it's five dollars, it has to be paid. So that's also key. I I actually have a note here to ask you about that one blog post about your free trial blog post. So yes, it's good. Can, can you dive into that? What uh, what happened? <laughs> What's the story behind there? Yeah, bunch of lessons learned. Yeah, uh, you know your audience will be like, I made so many mistakes. It's, it's like classic. Every mistake in the startup book, I made it. So we when we first started, we we said you know we are going to sell it, but then we quickly realized that no one was willing to buy early on. So we said, all right, let's get um, this free trial thing. We'll give it to you for free for 30 days. If it works, then you become a paying customer. Uh, there was no piece of paper done, just verbal email. So they used that. Um, nobody became a paying customer. Okay, we learned, we like, okay, we'll get smart. Now what we'll do is we'll get them to sign a piece of paper where we will get them to say, you know, the same thing, but in written. Customers there for a month, two months. They tried a little bit, played around with it, didn't become a paying customer. We were like, okay, um, how about we take it a step further? And we were researching online to figure out a ways to get this. We said, all right, how about we do this? We get them to pay, uh, not pay, use it, but we will use their logo as a social proof. So let's say I, I got Pepsi as a customer. I can go and say, oh, Pepsi is using us um, because the world doesn't know, need to know that they're paying. So there's some skin in the game. Uh, 
that worked a little bit better, but very, very few of them converted into paying customers. So not, not even once we asked them to pay anything. Uh, it was always some kind of commitment without something tangible. Um, and uh, that was a massive mistake. So when we pivoted the product, when we started from scratch with this B2B sales intelligence with uh, behavioral intent data, what we said was, screw all of this free trial to hell with you know one pager and stuff there is still a simple contract that says 30 days um, you will you will pay for it um, and we in fact even said uh, uh, money back we said we'll pay pay you back no one asked for the money um, but they didn't continue some of them didn't continue up the 90 days but at least they had money in it and the conversion rate from that from that nine uh, 30 day free trial to becoming a full annual customer was a lot higher. So, so that's my advice um, to everyone. Get them to pay a nominal amount. And um, yeah, yeah. And, and the, the offering of a money-back guarantee who has also gives them the comfort to know Absolutely. that. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And um, that you, we, we don't do that. Some companies still do it. I, I think early on it's worthwhile doing it. You just need that data point. You need that traction, right? Um, so yeah, money back guarantee is great. Uh, funny enough, and, and uh, what I, I emphasize is, so let's say your product is worth $1,000. You know that that's the value. Um, uh, but early on, give it discounted, but charge them something. That's what I'll say. Um, so as I said, we started at $99. And I remember in the second month, uh, I was in San Francisco. I met the head of um, sales operations at a massive company, publicly traded. He liked it. He's like, uh, how much is it? And I said, $99 a month. He's like, no, that's too cheap. I'm going to pay you more. And that's what you're going to charge. Uh, so, <laughs> and since then, we charge the same amount. And no one better than I. Um, yeah. And that's fine. But in the early days, you still put an amount. And you will probably get a customer like that. Like, I think it, you're valued more. You can charge. Or you will figure it out yourself. But get that skin in the game. And money is the most truest form of value that they will say they can it's I, I i go back to my first discussion that we had when i pitched to those 30 people in that big company they were all smiling i was happy i should have just asked it's actually 200 dollars a month or two thousand dollars a month uh, will you be paying that if i asked that question they would have just literally given me a no yes or no right then and i would have not expected so yeah yeah absolutely great well I mean, we're, we're running out of time yeah. here and, uh, I, I want to appreciate your, I very much appreciate your time. So thank, thank you, you for joining us. It, can you, is there a way for people to, to reach out to you and to also kind of look at your product? Yeah. 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 So the best way to do is for our product, just go to leadsift.com. Um, check it out. It's pretty straightforward. Um, if you want to know more, there's a, there's a button to contact us or request a demo or get a free sample report so you can get a list of target accounts for you to go after. But not a, but not a free trial. Not, not a free trial. It's a free report uh, give, to give you enough context and, do, and, and confidence in just showing you know, that it works for you. So, yeah, check that out. There's no strings attached there. Um, and, and to reach out to me, I'm active on Twitter at TDAS. Um, so that's, that's my Twitter account, LinkedIn, look up to Kandas, um, uh, on LinkedIn, connect with me, happy to help. If anyone has any questions, um, 
startup founders. If you think, uh, if you feel that I've made enough mistakes uh, and I can share them with you, more than happy to do that. Lovely. Dukan, thank you very much for your Thank time. you, Adam. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. To contact Adam about consulting services or speaking engagements, visit startupsalespodcast.com or email startupsalespodcast at gmail.com. Dukan, let's finish things up with the uh, final five here. Sure. What is your favorite sales or leadership book? Uh, the Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Yeah. Do you have somebody that you follow or read for sales and leadership advice? Um, I, I do follow a bunch of people. John Barrows would be one that I follow from a sales perspective. From a leadership perspective, I do follow um, a lot of uh, stuff from um, uh, Reed Hoffman, uh, Ben Horowitz. Um, again, those are, those are my, I guess, sales and leadership advices. <laughs> All right, good. Uh, are you available 24-7 uh, or do you have strict time boundaries? No, I don't have strict time boundaries. Uh, I, 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 I wouldn't say I work 24-7, but I do not have a strict boundary. I, when I sleep, I'm, I'm sleeping. I probably will not be able to take a call, but I do not have strict boundaries. No. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite tool that you use for sales besides uh, your own? Uh, out, outreach.io. <laughs> Yeah. So we have been using that for all our outbound prospecting. It's amazing. Right. And lastly, what one piece of advice do you have for all the founders and uh, sales leaders out there? Um, so it's a tough one. Um, one thing that I, I, it's not specifically for founders or uh, sales leaders, but every, it applies to everyone. And I, I really like this quote is, um, you cannot change the cards you are dealt, just how you play the hand. Um, it's true for sales guys, uh, sales leaders, salespeople, founders, CEOs. You really cannot change. You have the option. Either you can whine and cry about it or just get on and, and play the hand. So, so, yeah. Very good advice. Uh, life advice. Yes, it'll more for life advice. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Tukan, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Adam.